If you've got a Bible, will you turn with me to Mark 6? Um, and we're going to pick it up at verse 14. Mark chapter 6. And we're going to read from verse 14. And it begins, the passage begins um, with this. King Herod heard about this. Well, what's this? Well, this would include at least the mission of the 12 that has just been spoken about in the previous passage that if you were with us last week, we looked at together in our services. King Herod heard about this, the mission of Jesus. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he'd married. All right, so just get that clear in your head, what's going on here. So Herod had married his brother's wife, but his brother was still alive, okay, which was against all the sort of, all protocol and all um, what should happen, (laughs) all right, for obvious reasons. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, the woman, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. He liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, And she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Well, may you be encouraged by the reading of the word. (laughs) And uh, go and do likewise. Um, There are some stories that uh, sell newspapers If they're about royalty, sex, violence, and strange beliefs, people buy newspapers. And they splash it across the headlines because, well, because newspaper editors and proprietors think 
we're interested in this sort of story. And that is this story. This passage has all four. Royalty, sex, violence, and strange beliefs. It's a passage that is sort of, it kicks off because news of Jesus has reached the palace. This itinerant rabbi, this little sort of little village preacher, suddenly he comes to the attention of Herod. And they're trying to work out, who is he? And what Herod thinks is, no, long, no sooner do I get rid of one irritating preacher than another one comes. And what Mark does in this story is kind of interesting. So let's just see what he actually does. So it's set... Oh, hang on. There we go. It's set in a sandwich. It's like a sandwich. So chapter 6... The beginning of, from verse 7 through to verse 13, is a story of Jesus sending the disciples out two by two. And then verse 30, the verse I didn't actually read, said, The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they'd done and taught. So it's kind of like, that's the frame for this story. Do you see what, I'm, do you see what Mark's doing? So I'm telling you the story about the fact that disciples have gone out. And I'm going to tell you they came back and they're going to tell Jesus everything they're going to do, they've done. It's going to be great. But in the middle, Mark decides to tell us another story. <laughs> now, when that happens, someone's, someone's handbag is ringing. When that happens, I think... Like you would always do, you'd say, so why are you telling me that? Why this story? So what Mark does is he introduces this. King Herod had heard about this, the mission, and then there's a flashback to John the Baptist. So why is Mark wanting to tell you about John the Baptist? I mean, it's interesting, and it's vivid, and it's a brilliant story. And it's a story that's been painted over and over again. This sort of royal dinner party that just gets out of hand. Everybody gets drunk. The king um, is married to a woman that he shouldn't be married to. The woman is a woman scorned. The woman wants the head of John the Baptist, who's really irritating because he keeps saying, you shouldn't be doing this. And they bring the head on a platter to the king. It's gory, it's violent, it's all of that. But as so often, when Mark tells a story, he tells it really quite carefully. This is a picture um, of uh, one of the paintings at Pompeii. So around the same sort of time, this would have been painted perhaps in the 50s, this story would have happened in the 30s. Now, it's not in the same place, but you get some visual impression of what it would have looked like. They'd have been lying around. There'd have been a lot of wine. There'd have been servants. There would have been, it would have been very free and easy. But Mark begins the story, the first verse, 14. King Herod heard about this. Now, it's not evident just from reading it, but the truth is he wasn't a king. 
He longed to be a king. In fact, he wanted to be a king. When his father, Herod the Great, died, he longed to be known as the king. But the emperor said, you know, you're not going to be a king. You're going to be a tetrarch, which is kind of like lower down. So here's the question. Does Mark know that? Or did he get it wrong? And most people think he didn't get it wrong. He knew this, but he knew that the aspiration that Herod had was to be a king, the king of the Jews. It's interesting that Mark sets it up himself, King Herod, the king over this area of Judea, the king of the Jews, clashes with the kingdom. The other interesting part about this little story is that when the girl, his stepdaughter, comes in and does this dance which so pleases Herod and so pleases the guests, he says to her, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. And the truth was, it wasn't his to give. He couldn't actually deliver on any of that. Here's Herod trying to be someone that he isn't. But it ends with the beheading of John. And I think what Mark does here, as he will do from time to time, he gives you a little insight into the way the world is. And what happens to John the Baptist is, in a sense, what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus will also be facing the political powers, and they will crucify him. And it will happen to the disciples. James will be beheaded. And it will happen to the readers of Mark's gospel in Rome. So what's actually going on? I think what happens is the kingdom clashes with an alternative way of being. All of this is supposed to be good. God sets up rulers to exercise power for good. It's not that having rulers is wrong. They're supposed to work for the good of everybody. And they're supposed to work in line with what God would want for his world. It's not that banquets are wrong. It's right to honor people. It's right to say, listen, we want to give you space and place. And it's not wrong to fall in love. And it's not wrong to want to be with people. It's not wrong to love. But what happens here is sin twists everything. And power becomes corruption, and honor becomes drunkenness and an orgy, and love becomes lust. So in other words, what happens all the time, sin comes in and twists everything that God designs for good and twists it out of shape until it becomes the opposite of everything that God would want. So the problem with corruption, drunkenness, orgies, and like, and, and lust it's not just because they're bad things. It's actually because God created all of this for good. But actually sins come in and it's so far from what God would want. And Jesus has sent out the 12 in groups of two. So he sent out six little groups to do mission. 
To say, actually, the kingdom of God is here. There's something different. There's something different about the way we can be. And in the middle of the mission, he tells the story of John, John the Baptist. Because John steps in and John says, there's some things around here that are not right. And that takes courage. You might have seen this picture doing the rounds. It was in the newspaper. It was on TV, I think. But this young girl in Birmingham was facing up, this young Asian girl was facing up to in a, an EDL, the English Defence League rally. And she walked into the midst of these men who were sort of screaming and shouting and spitting. And she just faces them down. The courage of a girl who goes, things are not right and I'm not afraid of you. What sort of courage does it take to do that? What sort of courage does it take a man like John the Baptist to confront evil, to take a stand? But here's the thing. Sometimes you do take a stand and it doesn't end well for you. would be a very different story, wouldn't it? If Herod, who has been listening to John and has been intrigued by John and likes John, if Herod had gone, oh, John, you're right. <clears throat> I don't know what we were thinking. Can we, can we get this right? That would be a story that would be like, yes, always face down the authorities when you see it's wrong. And only good will come. But that's not how this story ends. John faces up the authorities. And even in a context where Herod likes him, but actually the forces are against him. Herod doesn't have the courage of his own convictions. And John loses. Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. But not everybody who's sent out on mission always wins. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes it looks like you've lost. But the only intriguing thing about this is, although for John the Baptist, he came to the end of his life, that was it for him, and awful way to die. The story of God continues, and you continue to, God continues to do his work in his world. So I was thinking... So what? <laughs> it's kind of like it's interesting, and it's true, and you can see it, and the more you read it, the more you can feel it and see it and hear the emotion. But I was thinking, well, what does it mean for you and I? Because we're never really, probably any of us going to be in exactly the same position as John the Baptist. We're not going to be there. But there is a sense in which there are moments where you do need to take a stand for truth and justice. Well, you're in a context where things aren't right, where things are being warped against God's good intention, where things are being taken and against what God wanted, actually, it's no longer that. It's so far from that. And I was thinking about it in two ways. Where you see that personally and then where you see it in organizations. Personally, what are we called to do? You're called to tell the truth. And sometimes you're in context where it would be easier to lie. 
or it would be easier not to tell the truth. It would be easier just to swing it a little. But actually, if you're going to be a messenger, a mouthpiece for truth and justice, sometimes the hard thing is to tell the truth. It's simple things now. It's things like not gossiping. When people are talking about other people, you go, actually, I don't recognize the person you're talking about, or I just don't want to get involved in this. Where you forgive, where you stand up for the weak, where you include the outsider, where you do right. And I don't know about you, but you begin to think, well, actually, well, where does that work out in my personal life? Where are the things that might not be massive deals, and no one's going to cut my head off, hopefully, but actually, it's just about taking a stand. Where are the temptations not to? And then in organizations, it might be in workplaces, but when you start to recognize What's broken here? See, John the Baptist knew what was broken in the court. And he could articulate it. This is the thing that's wrong. What's broken? How's power being used? How are people being treated? The thing about the John the Baptist story is, see how everybody was being treated. Herodias, the wife, She's trying to use a position for her own power. She's manipulating her own daughter. Her daughter is being paraded in front of a whole uh, room full of dinner guests. It's always, often, it's the women that lose. How, is, how are people being treated? Who's sidelined in your organization? How is God's design being warped? What did God intend for this, and how is it being warped? And then, who's this organization good news for? And wherever you are, whether it's a voluntary organization or it's a work setting, actually those questions become really important. Because the thing that you're involved with, on the whole, God would want to use for good, but sin will want to come and work against God's good design for the whole world. And how do you know what it means to be a mouthpiece for truth and justice? How do you work it out? There's something about working it out that goes, why should I speak? And I don't know if you agree with this, but I think the problem is if you only ever speak out when it's something that affects you, that's not enough. You speak out on truth and justice because it affects someone else. You're not just defending your own rights, you're actually defending the rights of others. Who speaks out? And how do you do it? And when should you do it? John the Baptist knew that in his context, he had to speak out because in a context that was simply not right, that was against what God would want, he was not afraid of saying, that's not how things should be around here. He knew it was his task to do because actually he had the ear of the king. 
And he did it because he kept meeting King Herod and he kept debating with him and telling him. And he knew he had to do it now, even though John the Baptist had had a remarkably successful ministry in the desert. Crowds had flocked to him. The whole of Jerusalem had gone out to him, one of the Gospels says. It would have been easy for John to say, look, if I get myself involved in this, I'll mess this up. That's not right, but let me do this, because this is working really well. But John knew, this is the task that I've been called to do. I'm going to take a stand for justice. And then I think, well, what does that mean for us? Jesus sends out the 12. They go out into mission, and then Mark tells a story about someone who actually was on mission. Speaking to the king, speaking to the court, speaking to the powers, willing to lay his own life down because of what he knew was going to be right. Is it any easier for some of us who are in situations where you see what's wrong and you go, I think I'll just keep my head down? Because if I do, then I might actually lose. Even though you know I should take a stand, I should speak. I'm going to pause at this point and just ask what comes to mind? What are you thinking? <laughs> What are you thinking? What you think could be wrong, but you don't know how to go about. I, I've um, volunteered to be a befriender with um, Age Concern. I went for the induction service after having my police check and everything, and it's all been stopped now because there's no funding. So I can't do it. And I just think it's really wrong. Yeah. Because there's so many lonely old people out there that would benefit and, and love to have a visit. Yeah. And that's the sort of situation where you go, things could be different around here. And, it's, and then it's kind of like, well, how do, you, how do you respond when you're blocked? What do you do next? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Just, I'm just interested in what you're thinking. I'm not going to try and solve everything at all because I can't. Yeah, Elaine. Well, it's a bit of a sideways thought, really. Um, when Herod um, was, had made the promise, he had to keep the promise. Why? Because of losing face yeah. with, his, um, with the people who were at the dinner party. Now, I wouldn't want to live in an age where they had um, heads on plates yeah. <laughs> in dinner parties. But wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a in where our politicians would lose face if they kept their promises? Yeah. I mean, we don't even expect them to keep their promises, yeah. let alone that they would be so embarrassed and whatever. That's what came to my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? That in a sense, I think the sort of the prevailing culture is we can't allow our politicians to change their minds because the papers and the media think that we wouldn't want that. But actually, come on. You're right. Why, why could a politician not go, yeah, we got that wrong, <laughs> without then 
having to sort of lose because the face. I think you're right. I think there is something about that. Wouldn't it be great to live in a time when people didn't fear losing face? That's why, that's, they, yeah, they do fear. They fear it, don't they? Now, yeah. But wouldn't it be great if they didn't have to fear it? That's what I'm saying. Am I misunderstanding? Do you all get it? Fine. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm clearly missing. No, it's not you, it's me, Elaine, obviously. Someone else, what are you thinking? As you read the passage and as you think it through for yourself, what do you see? I think uh, one of the things that uh, necessarily you'd have to be prepared for is, is do not think you're going to be popular for speaking out yeah. for what is right. It's, uh, it can sometimes be a very lonely and, uh, and trying experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Rosie? I was just saying, work. Uh, thinking work. Uh, there's a girl who's moaning about another girl who'd been really mean to her and like really horrible, um, and kind of she just was going on and on and on. And a guy in my office who's not got any faith in, he just said, actually, I don't see that side of her, and I don't think that she is like that at all. And just the respect that he got for standing up, and mm. she just looked, I don't know, like weak. And it's actually sometimes when people do stand up, it's not necessarily that they'll be unpopular. It could be that actually people, you know, they, they respect that yeah. kind of being different. Yeah. Someone else? Anybody else? As you read the passage, what goes through your head? What's the challenge? What's the, yeah, behind you, um, Lulu? It's good to see Lulu <laughs> and Ian and um, Henry. Fantastic. Um, I was just going to say that um, I just think praying is really important mm. in the process of speaking out um, because you have to remember why, like you said, why you're doing it. Yeah who you're doing it for, and it's all for the glory of God. So, um, and only by praying that God will put wisdom in yeah. your head, and he will tell you how, and he will tell you why. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking, following on from that, really, that because Christians can be seen so com so often as people that just complain about other people being wrong and judgment being judgmental and pious, it's really difficult to do the sort of thing John ba the Baptist did without coming across like that you know it's it's the moments where how can i do this in how can i speak the truth in love mm. without somebody thinking you just think you're better than me mm. and that you've got it all sorted out um and that's i think it's just really difficult like you said i think that's just following on from what lou said really it's praying isn't it for that sometimes just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean it's the one you should take sometimes you have to wait and you have to wait for the one way god really convicts you that this is the time when you need to speak out other times you might need to be silent Anybody else? Anne, right over there. I'm just thinking about the organisation. Um, in the health service, uh, before I left, they had what was called a no-blame culture. So you were supposed to be able to stand up and say if things were wrong. The actual culture was, you are to blame. If you say anything, you must be wrong. Uh, and I was just thinking about that then, you know, it is hard to stand up and be counted, mm. especially when you're being encouraged to do it, and then when you do do it, you're blamed. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, I just feel how incredibly brave John the Baptist was. I'm not sure I could be that brave. How many, how many other people would recognize 
that the culture you work in or you're in, this is an issue for? Just, and would any of you talk about it? Would any of you just sort of say what the challenges are? You're going to have to do a lot of ringing now. <laughs> All right. Just, if any of you, just who put your hand up? A few of you did, but just one or two of you. What's the, what's the challenges you face? Can you start? I think, again, it's this culture of almost the bitchiness and the um, trying to get one up on somebody else and kind of spreading rumours about people and the kind of gossip that you find yourself in. But then equally, not knowing exactly who to trust to then be able to say something about it or stand up. So when you're saying, when's the right time to stand up? I'm like, I don't know who I would trust to say that to. Mm. Um, so therefore you kind of feel like you're taking a stand by not saying something rather than saying yeah. the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Someone else, just in your, in your own context, who, for who? yeah, there's Julius at the back, and then... Thank you. Um, talking about organisational culture, um, I was once within a culture where they say, oh, as an academic, you are not supposed to talk God. Okay. So that was a dilemma for me. Yeah. You know, so I kept quiet. But I let my actions, my behavior speak for me. Yeah. So. And, and in, a con in a context where people might say you're not allowed to speak about something, sort of, there is a book that's been written, not by a Christian, called Is the Fear of Offending Limiting free speech or something like that. It's a, a bit, but it's that idea of we can't talk about some things and so therefore we limit free speech. Andrew, put his hand up. Um, the school I work at at the moment, there's a lot of changes going on. Um, we're going into one of these multi-academy trusty things and stuff like that and everyone's kind of concerned about where their jobs are going and all that sort of stuff. And it's started a lot of divisions um, in the workplace. Um, and I try and make myself as approachable as possible. Um, and, you know, if you know, a couple of weeks ago, someone was upset and I made him a cup of tea and had a chat with him. But in turn, that kind of creates its own problems because then you get other people coming up to you and going, why are you speaking to that person? They're not in our group. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. And it just, you end up in these circles and you try to kind of placate everyone. Is that the right word? Um, but then you, you kind of become this isolated person yourself because people aren't happy with you actually helping other people. Anybody <laughs> else? Yeah. Pat and then... who? I don't know if people are aware that the, there is a big movement um, to get people who worked in the post office uh, several years ago and who were totally destroyed by the actions of the post office itself and trying to get them to come forward, give evidence, be brave enough and I just hope, and, and this is it, the fear. Mm. Well, they don't want to go through it again. Mm. Mm. They went through it at the time, and they don't want to go through it. But I just hope and pray that, that people will be brave enough to come yeah. forward and state the case and the situation that they were in and what the post office did to them, which, believe me, I mean, one postmaster committed suicide. Right. And people are not aware of this. Yeah. So I just hope that that, yeah. you know, they have the, the courage yeah. to do it. The final one is Aaron at the back. 
I think that's true. Is that true, Aaron? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, put you on the spot. I work for the NHS, but I'm, I'm the union rep. Um, and although like my position, I suppose, in the big hierarchy is, is quite low, I end up in a lot of meetings with people that are a lot higher up than me. And um, I feel frustrated because I get a lot of eye rolls and tuts if I, you know, when I speak, just because of the nature of my position in, in these meetings. Um, and I, I get frustrated because I want to have more opportunity to tell people like a bit more about myself and that I'm a nice person, really. And, um, you know, you, you just if, if you're standing in those positions, people don't get your backstory and where you're coming mm. from. And I find that really difficult that you're just there to say, well, what the managers don't want to hear sometimes yeah. and not, you know, a bit more about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So here we are in church today and. Um, we're followers of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus who had a vision of the kingdom of God. Um, we're following Jesus who died on the cross for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons he was crucified was because he threatened the existing status quo. And he stood up. And he said things aren't right around here. Now, his death achieves so much, but that's the Jesus we follow, the Jesus whose death brings us into relationship with the Father, the death that does clean out our own wrongdoing, for it's easy for well-meaning and particularly well-meaning religious people to sort of feel we've got 20-20 vision on everybody else and everybody else's ills, but then sort of like unable to deal with our own, but actually recognizing that we foul up as well and we are forgiven and can be forgiven. But we worship that Jesus. The Jesus who, as he rose from the dead, blew his spirit on his followers. That we might be the people of mission, going out into the world, taking a stand, saying this is God's world. You can't do what you want with it. These are God's people created in his image. Actually, these people are precious. You can't treat them like rubbish. That actually, we've got a, a responsibility to one another. And some of us know that what we need is wisdom because that's often what we need. How and when and why and what do you do? And there's a danger that sometimes in church, what happens is we talk about faith as being so very, very personal and private that it kind of like just gives you resilience to get through. But actually, the vision that comes every now and again in the gospel are of people like John the Baptist who got involved in court affairs to say things aren't right around here at ruling levels. And none of us want martyrdom in any form of that. But the story's told, and it's in a sense, in a short gospel, you've got to look at times at the length that Mark takes to tell certain stories to ask yourselves, am I supposed to take note of this? Or is it simply of interest back then? And so my prayer this morning with you would be that we would have the wisdom to know what it means to stand for truth and righteousness. The belt of truth. 
breastplate of righteousness in a world that doesn't see that. And um, if you know that that's something that you need, then I'm going to ask you simply to stand with me now and we're going to pray together. One of, the, um, one of the difficulties can be when you take a stand, it can feel like you're on your own. And so in order for those people to know that we stand together, can, if you're sitting next to someone or near someone, can you just put your hand on their shoulder almost as a sign, a symbol to say, recognize that in your context, you're taking a stand for whatever reason. We don't need to know the details, but we recognize you're taking a stand for truth and righteousness. We want to stand with you. And if you're sitting next to someone who's standing, then just put your hand on their shoulder. Lord Jesus, we recognize that in all of our different contexts, in all of our different situations, You call us to be followers of the crucified Messiah, the crucified King. We recognize that it doesn't mean that everything's always going to be easy. In fact, we know, we don't need to be reminded that often it's complex. But Lord, we want to take a stand for what's right, for the way we see the world you've given us as people who've been created, yes, flawed, but never, ever thrown away. But through the resurrection of Jesus, we want to be people of hope. Father, I pray that you who raised Jesus from the dead would be the one who would use us to bring life into dead situations and dying situations. I pray for those of us who are in work context where it's really tricky to know what to say and who to say it to and when to say it and how to say it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to know in each situation what you'd want us to do. And I pray you'd give us a courage of heart not to draw back to protect ourselves. I want to pray, Lord, that our actions would have results of truth and righteousness and justice, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that the story of John the Baptist is this. That even on the days when it feels like we failed and it's not made a jot of difference, your mission continues. Lord, may you and your mission and your kingdom be apparent in our places, wherever those places are. And use as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.